3: From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday and very rainy edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Atlanta Public School Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, Herring joins me, and we'll talk about ongoing COVID-19 safety measures now that the students and faculty are all back in the classroom. Also, Captain Planet, remember him, the green conscious superhero? Well, now the Captain Planet Foundation is spearheading an initiative that involves community gardens to table to help food insecure households. Now, those conversations are all coming up in a moment. But first, we'll begin with this, and that is the weather update. I don't know about your commute, but mine was. ah. Anyway, Nicole Lisseman is a forecaster with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. She told Closer Look, the severe weather and heavy rain all comes from what is now tropical depression, Fred. And as for the remainder of the day here in metro Atlanta, she said this.
4: Luckily, the heaviest rainfall has pushed off to the north and east of Atlanta. We're currently still getting a few light showers, but by the early to mid part of the commute, most of that should have pushed off to the northeast of Atlanta.
3: Forecaster Lissaman added severe weather indeed did call for a few advisories.
4: We did have to issue a flash flood warning for portions of the Atlanta metro area that received some very heavy rainfall. So um, we are still getting some reports of very heavy rainfall around, in and around the metro area. We also had um, to issue a couple of tornado warnings overnight and early this morning um, for tornadoes within the individual bands uh, surrounding FRET.
3: Now, because of all the heavy rain, she says let's all be cautious.
4: There's still some runoff from saturated soil, so there could be some additional rises on creeks and rivers in the area. So don't drive onto flooded roadways or drive over or into creeks that are flooded.
3: I hope you heard what she said. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the state will step in and help hospitals in need of health care workers as COVID-19 cases still continue to take a toll on staffing.
0: This would amount to an additional $125 million of investment in state-supported staffing of hospital systems in both metro and rural areas through the first week of December.
3: Now, Kemp, in a press conference late Monday afternoon, also continued to his theory that the Biden administration's mixed messaging on mask wearing and the vaccine hesitancy is all because of the reason for the state's low vaccination rate. Dr. Kathleen Toomey, commissioner of the Georgia Department of Public Health, said a different approach is needed to get folks vaccinated.
4: I fully believe that it isn't going to a vaccination site that's going to motivate somebody, but having family, friends, your church members, having the opportunity to be vaccinated at the time you're doing other activities like grocery shopping or going to a farmer's market um, is, is when people will make that decision ultimately. And also engaging with primary care providers around the state and we are working with them to uh, ensure that they are able to offer vaccinations in their offices and most importantly counsel about the vaccine when their patients come in to talk to them and ask them questions. Meanwhile infections
3: and hospitalizations are well above where they were during the worst part of last summer's peak. In fact, the state data reveals some 1,000 more COVID-19 hospitalizations than during the worst of last summer's peak. And finally, Spelman College President Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell is announcing her retirement effective at the end of the 2021-22 academic year in a letter to the Spelman Community Campbell, the institution's 10th president, cited, quote, that the end of the 2021 22 academic year is the right time to re enter retirement and pass the baton on to the next leader so they can continue to build on our momentum, close quote. Campbell went on to highlight some achievements during her tenor, tenure, including significant investments in the academic program, attracting new financial aid for students and upgraded technology infrastructure. And she also mentioned that they sought and received support for their stellar faculty. Now, you may know that President Campbell has been a guest on Closer Look several times. And just last month, I asked her this. I got to ask about you. I, I remember, I believe your first interview as president was right here in this studio. I think I'm sitting in your chair right now. Um, How long you want to, how long you want me to keep referring to you as Madam president at Spelman College? (laughs) (laughs) I know you didn't know this was coming, but I'm sorry. You know,
1: I, I, you know, I love this job. I love Spelman and I love being here. And, and even with all the, you know, the challenges that we face this year, um, it's something that I I, I really am committed
3: to, but um,
1: you know, one has to think of when it's time to
3: take a bow and, and exit. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the first to know. Are you sure about that?
5: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> I don't know, Dr. Campbell. That is Spelman College President Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell back in July. And again, Dr. Campbell announcing she's retiring at the end of the 2021-22 academic school year. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlantis Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Big or small, school districts throughout the nation are implementing COVID-19 protocols. We know this, right? And that includes mandatory mask, maybe or optional now here in the Atlanta region we've been speaking with superintendents about their measures the Atlanta public schools have been back for a little over two weeks and joining me now is Dr. Lisa Herring APS superintendent and she's going to discuss how the district is faring so far and to talk about the APS protects approach Dr. Herring I understand you got caught in traffic but you join me on the phone
2: Listen, and the world is funny because I'm in the office now, happy to talk with you. But you actually caught me off guard. I'm a Spelman alum, Rose.
3: You didn't know and, uh, that, Doctor <laughs> Campbell didn't call and tell you.
2: Well, listen, we're not having that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's—I'll stay on topic. I'll stay on topic. But I will tell you that I am—you uh, I, 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 hit me with the headliner today.
3: Well, that's what we do around map. here, Doctor Herring. <laughs> That <laughs> we hit folks with a headliner. Let's begin. Yeah. Let's begin though with how it's going so far that first full week, so to speak. What did you hear from educators? Let's begin there.
2: Yes, I appreciate that question. You know, we started out this school year uh, very much like last year, in, in a new territory and a new environment, but with a few advantage points. If if last year was a boot camp for preparation and how to navigate during the pandemic. We were a little bit more prepared simply because of the mitigation strategies we had in place, Mm -hmm. or we still have in place. But I think the other part of your question is, you know, what are you hearing from educators? Before we started, we have to acknowledge that there was angst and concern about coming back at full capacity or full throttle, if you will. But I will also tell you that within a matter of days, uh, just the the familiarity of the normalcy of being back in the space uh, was encouraging and continues to be that. However, it doesn't take away the continued need for us to have uh, high levels of accountability and practice around our mitigation strategies. And so we've been deeply uh, focused on, uh, on monitoring for that and knowing that just the physical coming together uh, only increases the opportunities for, for how COVID spread. So thus it increases our responsibilities around what we need to do.
3: And for listeners who may not be aware, you all wore a mandatory mask in our school district
2: that is correct so universal masking um was how we started out this school year and we continue to operate in that space we have not only felt confident about that decision but we believe and, and maintain that it was the right decision as we see the you know the cases uh starting to I- emerge all over uh, mm-hmm. uh, all over our state and other places but even within our own brick and mortar so yes we started out with uh safety protocol that's inclusive of the universal mask wearing in all schools and buildings um, and that will continue and also um, the other mitigation strategies but it's important for me to all, always rise up to the notion of that we're doing um, surveillance testing in, in the district as well
3: what about from parents did you get a mixed bag of, of responses some in favor some not what did you hear and what did, how did you respond to both sides So
2: there are always voices, right? But I will tell you, in comparison to uh, the voices of the past, as we've made decisions, the vast majority of the feedback that I received, our administration or others, has been an appreciation and a support of wearing masks. That is the truth. Um, Now, that does not mean that there are individuals who have been adamant about their desire not to, but we have been clear in maintaining our policy, and the vast majority of the voices from parents have been in complete support of uh, wearing the mask.
3: Some school districts have been keeping a pretty accurate total of confirmed cases, quarantines on their website. First of all, what do you know through your knowledge in terms of confirmed cases within the district as it relates to educators or students? Are there any classrooms that are quarantined at the moment? Yep. Yep. So we've been
2: monitoring that now. Two things, you know, we were doing that last last year once we opened, but we've maintained that even at the start of this year. So last week uh, we had 90 confirmed cases among our students and staff during the first week of school. Now that was just two days, and then last week, our first full week of class, we had 250 total cases uh, relative to uh, COVID positive. And uh, again, I'm going to con- be intentional around reiterating. The fact that we also surveillance test weekly for COVID uh, allows for us to identify and pivot accordingly for quarantine and tracking um, before, uh, for those who are participating, it has a chance to continue to spread. That is a, a helpful and necessary protocol, we believe.
3: But our numbers
2: relative to our first full week has been mm-hmm. 250. Yeah, in terms of
3: cases. Now, is there a particular school? Did you see a, a high percentage in maybe a particular school or a classroom that you can share?
2: No, and that's an interesting question because we are looking at data trends and patterns. We believe that that's important. Um, so just given that we're right at about our ninth day uh, uh, of school and last week was the first full week, uh, there have not been any outstanding trends that have, merged, uh, that have surfaced to the top, but we do believe that there is a due diligence to monitor for that. So that's without question on our radar.
3: And what are you all paying attention to in terms of if you need to make a decision about uh, either suspending some in-person based on a school or a classroom, and if so are you all now, with the ability to shift to virtual if you have to, even if it's just for one classroom or even a school? How are you feeling about that?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question, Rose. And so uh, at our, our last board meeting, right before the start of school, we took the time to share, and we've made this information public. All of what I'm sharing is available on our district website, whether it's the cases um, or even our protocols relative to having to shift. So we've identified different scenarios that are tied to the need to quarantine and when we must pivot, whether that is a student testing positive or a teacher testing positive mm-hmm. or the exposure to a positive case. And so when we track, we do take into consideration um, the need to pivot a cohort of students, a classroom, or a full school. We've been fortunate. We have not been in a position so far, that's me knocking on wood, that mm-hmm. uh, requires us to uh, to, to pivot an entire school to be virtual. We've not had that yet. We've had a few um, uh, cases where we've had a cohort of students and teachers uh, within that 250 cases that I, that I just shared with you, but not at large scale. Our scenarios that we've made available on our district website um, in, in, in terms of how we pivot for virtual speaks to what that might look like, um, but um, at a high level. And then I also should say Atlanta Virtual Academy, is uh, certainly the option that we made available at the start of the, at the end of this last semester when we were Mm -hmm. asking parents to select what their choices are. Now, pivoting virtual means that if, if necessary, a classroom teacher at any given school or a substitute would be prepared to step in and do virtual instruction as well.
3: The voice you hear is Dr. Lisa Herring, the superintendent of the Atlanta Public Schools, and we're talking about the district's back-to-school plan so far as it relates to COVID-19. So I want to be very clear, Dr. Herring, parents have the option, do they have the option of of selecting virtual? They had to do that before school started, but if there are concerns now during the school year, is that an option?
2: No, at this juncture, AVA is operating at the capacity that was identified when that option was made available Uh, at the close of this past semester so that we could appropriately staff So AVA is an option that would have been previously selected however to be clear whenever there is a situation or scenario where there are larger numbers and we have to pivot for virtual instruction we are prepared to do that and that simply would be isolated on the school by school class by class um, um,
3: scenario. Yesterday on the program, I spoke with Emory professors who talked about understanding the behavioral and mental health needs for some students as they return back to the, the, the classroom here, because it can be for some that might have dealt with loss or, 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 you know, grief during this pandemic, and which continues, by the way. Are you all able to provide some resources for students, maybe even households, as they all deal with coming back? And it may be traumatic for some students or even educators.
2: So, listen, I I, I completely uh, agree with what you just shared. The only thing that I would uh, change is the statement that it may be. We believe that it is and has been. It has been uh, traumatic uh, for uh, not just some of our families, but our uh, staff and employees as well. So, you, really, the question is, you know, how have we uh, focused on on that? We've done everything by looking at our policies and practices that are tied to uh, addressing issues of trauma, and so we make certain that uh, students affected by childhood trauma are provided with necessary interventions and and and, and aid to address that. That's even in policy and practice, and also how we look at student academic and emotional growth. But beyond that, what I really want to emphasize, Rose, is our investment in that. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a a $1.95 million grant from school-based healthcare solutions to make sure that mental health providers are available at some of our campuses, two middle schools and four high schools. Uh, We've put in a universal screener throughout the entire system where we're screening for behavioral and mental health needs, and that starts in this semester. We have 10 additional school psychologists, 25 additional school social workers, and eight student support specialists. And then from the level of staff, we've made counseling services available to adults who need it immediately um, across our clusters. And I, I say that with intentionality because we took that seriously, and we wanted to also put our resources and support in that space.
3: And uh, tragically, Dr. Heron, you all have had some APS students who lost their lives uh, due to violence, violence this past summer. You and I both know, obviously, that, that crime, not just here in this area, but throughout the state and throughout the nation, violent crime is on an uptick here. As a district, what role do you see you all can or should play in also addressing those issues? Because they, they affect every community, if they affect every neighborhood.
2: Now, you know, so here's the thing about our work in public education and what I believe we have the capacity to do and what we need to do to be able to expand it more. So you just heard me, you know, share a list of resources that we've been intentional around, we being the board, this administration, and and leaders to invest in, whether that's mental health support, school psychologists, nurses, et cetera. Um, We already have within our construct a uh, support uh, of, of resources with staff and what we call student services with counseling, social work, et cetera. And that also pushes into curriculum. And so the school system is a safe haven for many, uh, for all of our children. I mm-hmm. think that's not just Atlanta specifically, but it's a part of what we provide in this space where we see the increase in violence and an opportunity for us to be that much more of a, of a, of impact. Here's where the school system can't do that alone. Which is the mm-hmm. second part to my um, response to that question. I don't think that any one entity can do it, and so the partnership with entities that can come together seriously matter. Whether those are, you know, Boys and Girls Club, YMCA, or Raising Expectations, Chris One Eighty, the City of Atlanta, et cetera. We have to partner with others, and also we have to partner with families, faith-based organizations, and then households and parents and guardians. When I think about the, the, if, if we identify violence as a public health issue, it's not something that one entity can address, mm-hmm. but we are much more impactful uh, together than in isolation.
3: And that's also now shift to obviously what the role you all, the primary role you all have, which, of course, is educating students. I know you've just been back just a little bit over, uh, not even quite two full weeks, but when will you all, if you haven't already begun to start assessing then the, the academic needs of for the students, particularly with what we keep hearing all the time was summer loss, but then also been highlighted or amplified by this pandemic. When would you all start doing those type of assessments for your students?
2: So, oh, uh, listen, Rose, and I, I'm, I know you, I, I'm not saying this next statement to get a smile or an applause out of you, but that was the right question, and the timing couldn't be more perfect because we just released this week Georgia Milestone, mm-hmm. right? and the, the, the data that identifies how many of our students actually were able to participate, and then what our proficiency levels look like in the areas of reading and mathematics for those who took the test. That's actually been perfectly timed with the fact that here in Atlanta Public Schools this week, we started the implementation of our universal screener to look at the overall proficiency level of every student in our organization. And we announced that we were going to use a universal screener, and that screener is referred to as MAP. Mm-hmm. Which helps measure academic progress, MAP, MAP, measuring academic progress, right? So this week we started with the uh, with the earlier the earlier learners, our our great band of K through kindergarten through second grade. We have started. That's the answer to the question, and it started this week. And we couldn't have guessed that it would start the same week that the Georgia Milestones data would start would be released.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: But
2: it only emphasizes our readiness to be prepared to address disrupted learning, right, Uh, interrupted learning. So you weren't surprised,
3: though. You weren't surprised by the results. I mean, I think a lot of educators and those in this space, we're hearing now that the results is pretty much what folks expected because of the pandemic.
2: No, we weren't surprised. We felt more so that we were prepared. We're not trying to figure out now what to do. We were thoughtful about that a year ago as we were figuring out what do we need to do when the doors opened again.
3: And finally, as we wrap up, Dr. Herring, we, we know that sports and all the fall activities are coming up in terms of those events that usually take place inside the schools, all the fall plays and all of that. Will you all make adjustments there, or for now they are on hold? Well, adjustments
2: um, are, have, have not been too different than in the space of what we've said in the past around just safety in terms of engagement. But relative to athletics, We've started business in in the normal protocol, but I have to be honest, we're watching and waiting to see if there is a need to pivot. Right now we are supporting, you know, the ongoing engagement with practices and also with games, but we are monitoring uh, every day. We're monitoring every day.
3: All right, Dr. Lisa Herring, superintendent of the Atlanta Public Schools. As always, we appreciate you taking the time. And also a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Dr. Herring, as always, appreciate you taking the time. We appreciate you.
2: Be well. Thank you. You too.
3: Closer looking continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Ro Scott. Okay, stop what you're doing, unless you're driving. Raise your hand if you remember watching this.
1: Earth, Wind!
4: Water! Heart
1: Go Planet. Planet!
3: By your powers combined, I am
4: Captain Planet. Captain Planet. He's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our power.
3: Ah, yes. Captain Planet. Great. This song will be stuck in my head all day, but that is okay. Well, the foundation that bears the name of the green conscious superhero that is known for working with youth to solve environmental problems has expanded its outreach uh, due to the pandemic. Now, actually last year the Captain Planet Foundation launched the Project Giving Gardens program to combat food insecurity. And I'm joined now by Ashley Roust, the director of Project Learning excuse me, Project Learning Garden and also Project Giving Gardens at the Captain Planet Foundation. And she also joins me to talk more about the history of the Foundation and how the Foundation is working with local school districts. Ashley, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rose.
6: Thanks so much for having me. Did you watch Captain Planet? I did. I watched it every day after school growing up. So um, it's always been near and dear to my heart.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend call me and say, you took me way back with that Captain Planet. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, a lot, a lot of kids enjoy Captain Planet. Let, let's Before we get into the, init- the initiatives that you all have been working with, just kind of want to get your thoughts, Ashley, on overall how – with the pandemic and and we know that folks that were struggling before the pandemic whether it was with health care food insecurity whatever it was that that was really just amplified highlighted during this pandemic your thoughts on all of this
6: yeah you know we were we started receiving calls from some of the school districts across metro atlanta and we were like what can we do they they were talking about the, um, the food lines at their school sites and how a majority of the food that they were giving out to families was packaged and, you know, bare minimal um, of fresh produce. So we looked around at what solutions we had, and we have school gardens across the metro Atlanta area, and we knew that we could activate those gardens rather quickly. So um, it's, it's been really interesting to hear from some of our um, gardeners that are working at these sites, um, the things that they're hearing from people that they meet at the pantries of just how hard it's been, whether it's you know parents that are taking in um, multi-generations of their, their kids and their kids' kids um, moving back in with them and just how hard it is to be able to stretch their dollars to be able to feed family.
3: In fact, it's information that we've been keeping track of. And according to Feed America, one in seven in Georgia children face hunger. And when you hear that statistic, Ashley, what goes through your mind?
6: What goes through my mind, Rose, is that we have solutions. And collectively, we need to work together to help get that food to kids, um, whether it's through school nutrition programs, after school snacks or um, helping the families um, connect with their local farmers and stretching their EBT dollars where they can double them at farmers markets or with local farmers. So.
3: And we should, um, and we should go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was going to say, we should know that just yesterday, the, uh, the SNAP program, we do understand that there are going to be an increase in terms of how much is going to be provided to folks. Some, some good news coming um, from the USDA. there. Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar just with the Captain Planet Foundation, talk a little bit about its history for them.
6: Yeah, so this year, the Captain Planet Foundation turns 30. Um, it, was, uh, it was co-founded by um, Ted Turner and Barbara Pyle, mm-hmm. and it was originally a corporate foundation of TBS. But in 2002, the foundation separated from TB- TBS and became its own 501c3 and our mission is to work collaboratively to engage and empower young people to be problem solvers of the planet. And we do that in two ways. Um, we do that through a grant making program, and we do that through operating programs. And um, as you mentioned before, I oversee two of those programs: Project Learning Gardens and Project Giving Garden.
3: Well, let me ask you this: uh, How would you assess then, just over the, over the years, the based on your history and mission, do you all feel like you're on track that you have? Put in some initiatives and programs that have really sort of met what you all are trying to do, and particularly as it works with youth here.
6: Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, through our grant program, we've funded over twenty seven hundred hands on environmental education programs across the U.S., um, and we've touched more than one point six million children um, through the U.S. and um, across thirty five countries through our um, Change Maker program. So I feel like we have planted seeds um, Mm -hmm. over the years and we're able to see some of those seeds grow into the youth that they are today. And we continue to work with them. And it's really amazing to see where some of those youth started and where they are now and and the programs that they're um, sharing with their communities.
3: So, Well, your foundations project, the Learning Garden Initiative, this started a few years ago. Take our listeners through that. Yeah,
6: Yeah, so Project Learning Garden um, program was started in 2012. We looked at the best practices that um, we saw across um, all of the grants that we had given out that really provide teachers with a turnkey approach to school gardens that can also use their Outside space and turn it into a learning laboratory and instructional space where the students could come out, connect with their environment, do some real-world problem-solving. Um, you know, planting seeds at an early age and nurturing those seeds and watching them grow really help children to establish a palate for fresh fruits and vegetables. And it also just cultivates their interest and affinity for natural systems. So, when those students are given the opportunity to engage with With the garden space and develop a relationship, they're more likely to, you know, become environmental stewards Mm -hmm. in the process.
3: So, Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say often when I have these conversations, I'm always amazed. And and I hear how folks talk about how, for some students, for some kids, they have no idea where our fruits and vegetables come from. They think you just go to the store and they're there. And so, uh, an understanding of how not just our, our ecosystem works, but just understanding our food source base for some of these kids is is, is eye-opening for them.
6: Mm-hmm, it is. It's really amazing to see their curiosity grow just from planting the seed and, and how quickly that seed turns into a sprout. And then by the time they're ready to harvest it, before they planted the seed they may not have been willing to try it but now that they've grown it and seen it to harvest they're more likely to try that fruit or vegetable.
3: Uh, Now let's move on to the Project Giving Gardens program that you all started and this came about obviously because of the pandemic?
6: Yeah it did you know we part of what we offer with Project Learning Gardens are five key elements that include the garden beds, the soil, seeds, online um, teacher training, a mobile kitchen cart that includes a Vitamix blender um, and a garden exploration kit. And and as teachers go through our training, we try to help them establish their summer garden maintenance strategies. So we look at Project Giving Gardens as really an extension of summer garden maintenance um, as, as one of the strategies for summer garden maintenance that really harnesses the summer break and summer growing season to cultivate, plant, and distribute um, produce to families and students that need it the most.
3: So I imagine then, Ashley, this is strategic in terms of where these 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 garden programs are placed, and because I imagine then it the communities that they're around or that they're, they're centered in, obviously is a it's a community that's in desperate need of additional access to what we call quality and and, and healthy fruits and vegetables of that nature.
6: Yeah, you're correct. Last year, we started the program in May um, as a response to COVID and ended it in November. So we were opening the program up to any and all schools that had gardens that were interested in participating. So we had over 100 school gardens, around 21 community garden sites with 10 growers overseeing those sites, and we grew around 100,000 pounds of produce. This year, I was more intentional about selecting the schools based on their location, really looking at the areas where food access was needed um, to make sure that we are, you know, activating gardens where the food need is the highest, the, quick, the quickest, based on our resources and um, the number of growers that we had. So,
3: And Ashley, here in the Atlanta area, where are some of those communities? Um,
6: we work with... Uh, Atlanta Public Schools, Winnett County Schools, DeKalb County Schools, Cobb County, Douglas, um, Henry County. So all across the Metro Atlanta area, we have a little over 300 schools um, that we have provided Project Learning Garden grants to. And any of those schools were given the opportunity to apply for support with Project Giving Gardens.
3: You know, Amber, the whole, if you want to call it urban garden movement or the whole movement to to grow, you know, fruits and vegetables in in urban settings, you know, that's nothing new. I mean, it's been around for a long time, but I know I understand you are seeing a shift in in terms of who's involved now in this sort of urban growers or or urban farming movement and all because it, it is to address food insecurity communities.
6: Yeah, there has been quite a shift. We've had, you know, people that were gardeners in the city that became um, growers that participated in Project Giving Gardens. We had stay-at-home moms that were had gone through the Master Gardener program that were looking for ways to engage and get get involved and just help be a part of that solution for feeding families. So the range of folks is all over the place. We've even had some students, former students that were active in their middle elementary middle and high school gardens that have um become interested in and become a grower um for project giving gardens so the range is all across the board but all it takes is a little bit of um patience and nurture right to Mm -hmm. to watch a seed and and um nurture it and watch it grow
3: and as important for those communities then whether you all are still there or not but also it sort of fuels a desire to have gardens throughout the entire community, maybe not just at a school?
6: Yeah, you know, Project Giving Gardens, we look at it as providing three things for our school garden sites that participate. Um, We, you know, we provide employment to growers that may not have had employment um, due to COVID. And then we also are providing that fresh produce right there to the community whether it's to the students and families or the local pantry site in the community and then the third thing that it that we offer is that right now as we're transitioning back into in-person school Mm -hmm. the growers are handing those gardens off to teachers and so they're not having to start from scratch the gardens are planted they're ready for the kids and the teachers to go out and learn and and be able to have that outdoor space to um get, get outside and not have to worry about being inside in the classroom. So,
3: you know, Amber, when we started, this, excuse me, actually when we started this conversation and you talked about the Im- importance of this, when you look at then how communities, how something how a project like this and how communities can benefit and then what that does down the road, what do you want folks to know about the importance of programs like this?
6: Um, you know, it really takes its all. So I think that the importance of this program is that we are teaching our kids where their food comes from and that one day they too can be a part of our food system, whether it's who they thinking about who they purchase the food from or growing the food themselves. And um, one thing that we all know is that people love food and mm-hmm. we share that commonality and being able to share any additional produce that we have with each other. Um, makes a stronger community
3: a healthier community and everyone should have access to healthy fruit fruits and produce we know that ashley rouse director of project learning garden and project giving gardens at the captain planet foundation ashley thank you so much for what you all are doing for the community thank you
6: thank you so much for having me we appreciate the time
3: And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlantis Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, last week on the program, we told you about a retail recruitment incubator initiative to help business owners move into their own space. It was spearheaded by the Decatur Downtown Development Authority. I spoke with Shirley Bayless, the downtown program manager for the city of Decatur, and she talked about who's eligible to apply. Anyone who's
1: interested can go to Decatur DDA or Downtown Development Authority forward slash incubator so they can go there and they can apply and uh, put in their application. So th- one, they will have have to have been in business at least two years. They will um, need to um, have their P and L and financial statements for two years.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we will also ask that they also um, provide us with, you know, their, their, license for whatever city and county they're in right now, Mm -hmm. Um, registrations, things that they may have to have with the state. We want them to attach that to the process. Uh, We are saying that you have to have 10 or less employees. So, and that includes the owner themselves. And that's, um, and that's kind of some of the general things there as it as they get into the application, there's some more detailed things that are requested and asked of them.
3: Now, we should note that the application process to apply is now open online, on the, as she mentioned, on the Decatur Downtown Development Authority website. My next guest is also doing something to help other business owners, Amber Lawson. She's a general contractor and the principal and founder of Aspire Construction and Design. Amber Lawson joins me now to talk about her company, her journey, and how she's using her skills, expertise to help other women entrepreneurs. And since last week, I talked about my hotel for wayward cats. I'm sure Amber now can help me with that since many of you emailed and made fun of me that's okay amber welcome to the program i appreciate it thank you so much rose it's a pleasure and an honor to be uh with you today everyone has an origin story what got you interested in the real estate development design and construction business what's this journey been like you know
5: it was a circuitous journey i started out as a property manager and just realized that the only part of the job that really got me out of bed in the morning was making a space new, building something different than what was there yesterday. So I decided to pursue that full time and um,
3: did that. And then Aspire Construction and Design was born four years ago. Aspire Construction Design. How often are you seeing folks that look like you, the women, other women as well, in this industry that are owners? Yeah. I threw that in there. Yes, yes. Interestingly enough,
5: you know, there's an organization, National Association of Black Women in Construction, Mm -hmm. um, of which I am a board member. And there is quite a few of us. Um, You would be surprised. Um, We are small in number, but we are mighty.
3: When you say small in number and and are mighty, how important is it that even if you are small but mighty, you are able to help and obviously maybe even inspire other women to get into the business? You know, design,
5: construction, architecture, engineering, it is such a STEM-focused industry. And as you know and other people know, STEM-focused industries are uh, ones that are ripe for growth now and in the future. So being able to see someone that is out there doing it already is clearly um, an incentive and a, a door opener. Um, to that end, um, I've partnered with Atlanta Technical College on a few projects mm-hmm. and bought some people that look like me um, onto some job sites to give them some on site
3: experience. Overall, how many years have you, of experience do you have in real estate development, design, and construction, Amber? 22 plus. Wow. Now we should know we just had Pinky Cole on the program. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a connection there because you you helped build out part of the, the new Slutty Vegan on Edgewood Avenue in Atlanta, correct? That is correct, yes. How cool is it when you get to work with other uh, women-owned businesses here?
5: You know, the beautiful thing about being in this space and being who I am Um, You know, like attracts like, and over 95% of my clients are Black women entrepreneurs. Um, And to be honest with you, I have seen an uptick in the number of Black women that have been approaching me and looking to open up businesses. We're talking about salon suites, restaurants, um, offices. Um, I'm even working on a beauty school at the underground. Um, so the women here in Atlanta, they are here, they are ready to, you know, go out there and take the risk and be entrepreneurs and, uh, aspire is helping them move into those physical spaces, designing and building them.
3: Let's talk about that. You, you're helping, but how often do you tell your story? And I, I don't know if you had any struggles or, you know, maybe some challenges along the way, but do you tell that? To some of these women to help them understand that, what could, you know, not to scare them, but be realistic. Sure. So I got to tell you um, entrepreneurs
5: that are coming to me, once they get to the stage where they are ready to spend significant dollars on commercial real estate, whether that's leasing it or purchasing it, they have already been through the trenches, mm-hmm. right? Um, to even get to the point where you're considering investing those types of dollars in a physical location for your business, you've been through the trenches. Now, we definitely trade some war stories and we definitely, um, you know, um, give each other support mm-hmm. um, so that the things that I've learned, you don't have to go through it. And um, I found some significant support among my clients. Um in reference to just kind of you know figuring things out as we go, because as an entrepreneur,
3: <laughs> I understand. Let me ask you: this, What are some of those uh, typical questions you get though from from those who are ready to take that next phase? What uh, what are some of the typical concerns they have about? Because you know you want to make sure you find that right space because that space is so important.
5: You know, um, well, first of all, the biggest thing that I find um, when clients come to me is many times they're coming to me having found a space um, on their own and while that's okay it's a much better route for you to have a real estate broker someone that can get in there and negotiate the terms of the of the lease you know that free rent period the Mm -hmm. tenant improvement dollars there's just so many things that go into this real estate transaction that are way different than anything you would have ever experienced renting an apartment or buying a house. It's just a totally different ball game. So that's one of the things that I encourage all of my clients, if they get to me and they don't have that yet, to go out and get that so we can make sure that they get the best bang for their buck.
3: And listen, we know here in the Atlanta area because we talk about affordable housing in terms of the residential side. We've never really talked about the commercial side, so definitely can understand that aspect of it. But now, listen, you have you all are opening opening an office in the Pist- Pittsburgh neighborhood at Pittsburgh Yards, correct? Yes. Why that, that Why um, that area? I think I know, but tell our listeners. <laughs>
5: So you know, Pittsburgh is an in-town neighborhood. Um, I live in Mechanicsville, which is the next neighborhood over, which is another in-town neighborhood. And these have been historically underserved neighborhoods, particularly in the commercial real estate space. Um, you know, lack of supermarkets, lack of businesses, lack of commercial development. Mm-hmm. And being a long-term, long-time resident as well as a business owner. It was important for Aspire to be a part of the change of these neighborhoods, particularly since we look like the historic residents that have been in Pittsburgh Yards, Mechanicsville, uh, Grant Park, and so on and so forth.
3: If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Amber Lawson. She's the general contractor, the principal and founder of Aspire Construction and Design. And she was talking about how now Amber is taking her expertise and helping other women business owners. So folks listening, because I'll get an email. Matter of fact, one just probably popped up. OK, Rose, tell Amber I'm ready. And I'm like, OK, you heard what Amber said. Don't just. <laughs> so folks are or, or, when folks want to get in contact with you. At what stage should they really be at and what should they look at? In terms of really making sure that they're at that, they're at this next level here. When you talk about owning your own or leasing your own commercial space here, you know, uh, Rose, it's a catch
5: 22 when you're an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, you got to have some funds available to take that next step. But a lot of times, in combination with that, you got to step out on faith because it's a chicken and the egg. You can't grow until you get into a bigger space. And you may not have the fund. It's just it's definitely a balancing game. So you definitely have to have some funds in place. But I would say, you know, do what you can and reach out at whatever step. I'm willing to speak with people and let them know, like, listen, maybe you can't move into a 2000 square foot space, but Mm -hmm. absolutely 500 square feet. Let's do that and really give them a rundown on what those numbers look like. So that when you get uh, in the midst of everything, you're not surprised.
3: Let me ask you this. What is your, I know what your goal is, but how do you see what you all will be able to do with Aspire? Let's say in in the next two to five years and helping grow what you talked about, this commercial real estate side that where it's a little bit more diverse than what we see now in the Atlanta area.
5: You know, um, the employees that we have here at Aspire, you know, I am... um, I'm a graduate of Southern Polytech State University in Marietta, Mm -hmm. and two of my employees are graduates from that school, and they have an excellent architecture and construction management program. And so, you know, it's really a 360 um, process, you know, hiring people um, that are diverse to give them those opportunities, as well as serving um, our clientele. Because to be honest, you know, it is a clientele that has been overlooked um, by a lot of people, mm-hmm. and Aspire is here to fill that gap, and really to take that entrepreneur from, okay, you've been working out of your house, now it's time to move into that commercial space, and let's make sure you're successful when you take that step out.
3: I have a listener who wants to know, does it, you mentioned having a commercial real estate person work with you, the listener wants to know, does that cost? No, the um, the
5: building owner or the landlord pays for that, so There is no detriment to you (laughs) to getting a broker on your side to help negotiate that deal.
3: Let me ask you this, Amber, through your lens, and I know you're in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, but there are the other regions around the city that you think folks, through your lens now, folks might want to look at or consider in terms of the commercial space, depending on what that industry may be. Are there any sort of hidden gems that you want to reveal or you want to keep them hidden? (laughs) Listen, it's it's all about sharing information.
5: We we are all trying to get to the next level. So I have to say, one of my clients, um, Skyrise Property Group, they just opened a co-working um, space in Jonesboro, and uh, you know, Jonesboro is ideally situated between the city and the airport. Mm -hmm. So if you have a business that is looking for space that is not going to be that top dollar rent that you'd be paying downtown, but you're in a really good location, I think Jonesboro is a really good place to look.
3: What are some of the pitfalls that you think people should avoid or that are common that you want to let folks know about? You know, again, the biggest pitfall
5: is going into that negotiation without somebody on your side. And the second is not talking to a contractor about what kind of dollars you're going to be looking at, because people can be really surprised at the sticker on renovating a commercial space. You know, Mm -hmm. you could be looking at anywhere from 50 to a half a million dollars on a space that you don't own. So that is a very uh, big pill to swallow when you are not accustomed to operating in that space.
3: Well, what questions do you definitely want folks to ask? Maybe if they don't have a a commercial real estate person working with them. What questions do you want folks to to say, look, this is definitely what you must ask during that first meeting with the landlord or the property manager? So really what
5: you really want to do is you want to go to that space early in the morning you want to go in the afternoon you want to go at night and you want to see what kind of traffic is coming to that space and is your business dependent on foot traffic
3: and that is part of my conversation with amber lawson a lot of you reached out you want to hear the segment because we realized not all have online access so we wanted to bring you that conversation with Amber Lawson, a general contractor, founder of Aspire Construction and Design. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE and Lattice Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air
3: podcast from WHYY and NPR